Fourth of July. Yeah. Am I up? Um, no. Nope. Hold on. Can't run around. Can't run on top of the pews. Y'all go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be finishing this chapter today. There's so much, and I can't wait to get into it. But I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad for our church. I'm thankful to God. Thankful that I'm privileged to stand up here today before you. So let us enter into a time of prayer before we study God's Word. Join with me. Father God, I thank you for your evident presence here today, for the way that you are working and moving and, and growing the people in this church. Father God, I'm so grateful that it's not dependent upon me or any other teacher, God. We're wholly reliant upon you in our worship for our salvation. God, for your word and everything, God, we just lean on you. It's from you that we receive truth, that we receive life. God, that we receive the strength to move on, to fight the fight each day. God, I thank you for the fact that we can gather together once a week to celebrate, to worship, to be grateful, to be broken, just to be before you. God, I pray that we become a church who worships not just on Sunday, but each and every day. That we would seek to pursue you, to live amongst brothers and sisters each and every day, God. Let it not just be here on Jones Creek. 
but throughout the week and throughout our days, God, I pray for us to receive your word today, for your truth to be heard despite anything I would say. God, let us only hear you. God, give me the words to say in which to lead us to a a closer relationship, a better understanding of who you are and your word and our purpose and our place. God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who though today we celebrate the freedom, the independence that we gained so long ago for this country so that we can live free here and now, that we have all these privileges, all these rights. God, though it may seem cliche, let us just remember that like you are the one who gives us true freedom. It is from you we've received privileges and an inheritance and these rights. God, you have ordained our equality and our, uh, you have set up the true system of justice. God, like you are the epitome of what is good and what is not of this world. You set up the standards for purity. You set up the standards for what it means to truly be free. And you have made a way for us all through Christ. Because of the blood the men shared for us so long ago, like we have received this freedom as a nation. We have grown upon that. We have strived and struggled to make it as good as it can be. But God, because of the blood you shed, despite the failures and the flaws and the shortcomings of any type of government or organization, when man seeks to hold power and hold authority, God, let us just rest that you are the ultimate power, that you are the ultimate authority, and that we are in your hands. Let that be our first hope. Let that be the place where we find our joy and our security and our comfort and our strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's finishing up this portion right here. Last week we talked about how he was reaching forward to God's goal. Let me read for you 12 through 16 as we lead up to the text today. Paul says this, he says, Not that I have already reached the goal, or I am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying. But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind, and reaching forward to what is ahead. He says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. God is going to guide. He is going to uh, show us. And in verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Just follow what you know. And so that leads us to voice 17. Verse 17. Paul asks this of the Philippians, those brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Christ at Philippi. He says, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have 
in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So let's back up. Let's go back to 17. It says, join in imitating me. So far in Philippians, we have seen example and example again. All of chapter 2, essentially 5 through 11, is talking about following the example of humility, of servanthood that like Christ has set up. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality of God something to be exploited. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, he's highly exalted. And for this reason, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that is the example that Paul sets up first. Then we follow it down because you got to remember, he says, and join in imitating me. And Paul set his example up uh, earlier in chapter three, where he says, you know, I was born of Hebrews. I was all these things under the law. I was righteous. I have done everything in man's power to justify myself before God, but I count it as nothing because of what Christ has done, because Christ is my treasure. And so when Paul is asking them to join in imitating him, he's not asking them to be imprisoned in a Roman jail. He's not asking them to go through shipwrecks and snake bites and stonings. Paul is asking them to just do what we talked about last week. Forget what is behind and make every effort as you move forward in your pursuit of Christ, to take hold of it as Christ has already taken hold of you. And so that's why he's saying it's not a boastful thing. It's not look at all the ways in which I have done these miraculous and amazing things and how I've healed people and how I've set, cast out demons. No, like just keep pursuing God. Imitate me. Forget what is behind and strive continuously through your shipwrecks, through your imprisonments, through your failures and your flaws, the thorns in your side. Just keep making every effort to pursue Christ. And he says, that's what he's saying when he says, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. Who's that us he's talking about? You have to go back to chapter two in this letter where he's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. That is the us, the example he's setting. Because if you remember when we looked through verses 19 through 30, when it discusses Timothy and Epaphroditus, it lays out some of the things that are worth following in their example, that they genuinely care for others that they are seeking Christ's interests and not their own interests, that they are serving in ministry. He calls Epaphroditus a brother, a co-worker, a soldier, a messenger, and a minister. And he 
praises him and he says that Epaphroditus, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry, honor people like him. So these are the examples. Like we have been given this perfect example in Christ Jesus for us to follow. But then you say, well, you know, there's this apostle. Look at what he is doing. But he has been given this special anointing and still like he's just a man who is striving with everything that he has to take hold of what Christ has for him because Christ has already got a hold of him. And so you see, even in this uh, in our Christ, in this apostle, in Timothy, who was this uh, called man who was serving as an elder, planting these churches. Like, again, there's an example in Epaphroditus who was simply a member of the church in Philippi who had stepped out of his comfort zone to go and to serve in the ministry by reaching out to Paul where he was and comforting and encouraging and being there for him. Like, these are the examples that Paul is asking for us to follow. Live according to the example that you have in us. And so when we start to bring that back down to earth and we start to apply it to where we are right now, like what do we model? You in your life and how you live and how you follow God, like what do you model that is worthy of imitating? And that can be a very humbling thing. That can be a very breaking and and cutting us out at the knees kind of question because many of us, as we struggle, as we strive, like we don't feel like there's a lot worth following. We don't feel like we're ever doing enough, that we're ever good enough. And, but that's not what Paul is saying. Like you do not have to be perfect. He says himself, not, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I am making every effort. And so don't see yourself as this failure that no one should follow. The fact that you have stumbled and fallen and you keep going, that is the endurance, that is the persistence, that is the grit that we can be modeling to those around us. I wrote down a couple things. So in your adherence to what God is calling us to do in this passage, Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating me, says Paul. How can we do that? How can we take that from God's word and apply it to our daily lives? And it's, it's like this. Model how you have your quiet time. Model how you share the gospel to your children, to those around you, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like Model how to lead in, in a Bible study. Model how to repent after sinning. So it's not model in a way that makes you seem perfect, model in a way that makes in a way that makes you seem above all of this. No, like model in a way that is gritty and real and down to earth to where like brothers and sisters who struggle and stumble, maybe in their infancy in knowing God, maybe in the fact that they do not know him at all, like they can see that even though you're not perfect, you are gonna continuously strive to follow the one who is. So like model how to repent, model how to show hospitality, how to give, how to love, how to forgive those, whether they deserve it in your eyes or not. 
Like this is who Christ has called for us to be, not people who are already perfect, not those who have reached the goal, but simply those who are making every effort to pursue Him. And let that be the witness that when we fall, we don't stay down, that when we struggle, we don't give up. Like it is a continuous pursuit of something that we're not going to attain until the end. But we will attain it. We're going to read that later. He says this, For I have often told you, moving on in the text, Paul says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Before you before we move on into these four kind of points he makes under that, like describing who the enemies of the cross of Christ are, we have to understand Paul's mindset, Paul's emotions, Paul's, uh, con- the context that comes with this when he says this. Because he says, for I have often told you, so this is something that has continuously been with him, I have often told you, and now say again with tears. Paul is broken over these truths, broken over the fact that this is what's happening with his people. If we flip to Romans chapter 9, just let me read a few quick verses for you. Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Paul is uh, speaking about the, the Israelites who did not adopt Christ. They did not accept him. And this is how he speaks about them. It says, verses 1 through 3, I speak the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. That I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. So Paul is saying here that like he loves these, these lost, these Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the ancestors and are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came Christ, who is God all over, praised forever. Like these are the people that God has chosen, and yet he sees Paul is broken over the fact that they have not accepted him. They have revealed them, God has revealed himself to them. God has shown them. And Paul has made it clear, like Christ is the Messiah. Christ has come. Like this is our father walking amongst us. He died for us. And this is the way that we can be atoned to him. And yet they chose not to reject him. And they chose to reject him. They chose not to follow him or accept him. And Paul says, for I wish I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. I love them so much. I just wish that they knew Christ, even if it meant that I did not know him myself. It's with that attitude It's with that mentality that he has often told the Philippians and he now says again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Culturally, uh, historically in this world, 
We view enemies as the opposition. We view enemies as those who are against us and therefore like we should be in every way against them. Like total war. That means with every, total war is this term that gets thrown around all the time and historical uh, and, uh, and, it's, and it's inaccurate because what total war means is that with every waking moment, with every breath, with every energy, with every amount of resources a country has or a nation or a tribe has, like they are spending that in total war against their enemy, in total war against their opposition, seeking complete and utter annihilation of those that have come against them. This is how Rome spread. This is how Alexander spread. Like everything, this is what the Germans attempted in World War II. It was a total war. Everything in their nation and their society was completely turned against their enemy. And so often because of that, because we are a nation, we are uh, a people, like we are a tribe essentially, we have fallen into that same thing. We're like, we view our enemies as something that we should fight against wholeheartedly, like that they need to be destroyed, that we should turn total war against them. When in reality, Biblically, what Christ has done in his example is that he came and he died for his enemies. He came and he died. In no, you know, we have all these Marvel movies, all these DC movies, like superhero movies are prominent and popular. In not a single one of them do we see a savior a hero like we do in Christ because Christ didn't come to defeat the enemy. He did, but Christ came to die for those who oppose him. Christ came to die for those who were sinning against him. Christ came to die so that he could redeem the whole world. But now we have this choice. And so there are those who will choose to be enemies of the gospel, to be enemies of the cross of Christ. And there are those of us who will choose to follow it. That does not put them in opposition with us. Notice here, Paul does not say that these are now our enemies. These are the people we're to go after, not to destroy them, but to save them. That's what Paul's talking about here. He would give up his own salvation if he could, if they would just know Christ themselves. But the reality, the truth is, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is how they're described here. It begins with this. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. So often we look at people who living in sin they are. We see them worldly as successful, as fruitful, as happy, as joyous. And that's why I think it's so important that Paul puts this here, now, at the beginning, like enemies of the cross, first thing you need to understand, the first thing you need to understand is that their end is destruction. What does destruction mean? Like, what, How is Paul defining that term? If we are in Philippians and we go back to right in chapter 1, verse 27, or verse 28, sorry. Paul says this. Uh, he's talking about um, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 28, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. 
He says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. And so if we're trying to figure out like, what does Paul mean here in chapter three by destruction? We see in chapter one that the way that he's defining it is in the exact opposition to salvation. And therefore, in this verse, destruction is alluding to the opposite of salvation, which is an eternity in hell. And so like their end, despite no matter what their life looks like here on this earth, the enemies of the cross, their end is hell. A conscious, eternal torment from which there is no escape, there is no reprieve, there is no relief, and there is no hope. You can, we can endure a lot of things in this life, a lot of hard things. A couple weeks ago, we were at a men's uh, Bible study at Harrison's house one night, and um, I was just trying to be stupid in front of Tom Miller, because I'm good at that, and we've got these hot, uh, these baked potatoes right out of the cooker, and I grabbed one, because he was like, you know, he was like picking it, he said, oh, ah, oh, you know, these are hot, and I just grabbed one, and I held it, and I was like, these aren't that bad. Was it hot? Absolutely. <laughs> but if you're going to be tough, you've got to be dumb or whatever the song says. And so, like, just, just, but I know, like, you can go through so many things in life, so many hard things, tough things. Like, it's a mentality set where, like, whether it's sports or a hard portion of your life, like, you can suffer for a short time because you know it's going to be a short time. I can get through anything as long as it's only 10 minutes. You know what I mean? because I know it's going to end. But their end is destruction. And there is no time limit. There is no off switch. There is no removing of them from that. Like the end, the finality, the, the end of the road, the end of the line, however you can look at it, when things come to a close, the enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. But God has made another way possible. And so the second attribute of the enemies of the cross of Christ is that their God is their stomach. Now, uh, so often, like, people throw this out whenever you're getting into a diet, and it's like a biblical thing. It's like, well, you know, their God is their stomach. Like, don't let your diet rule your life or this or that or whatever. But what, what this means within its context, within the original language, just like when Jesus wept, uh, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, when he saw how broken the sisters were, like he wept, that, that was a term that actually meant a churning of his gut, of his stomach, like from the depths of his bowels. Because like in that culture, in that time, like right now we describe everything like comes from the heart. Like, oh, it broke my heart, my achy breaky heart, Right. But then, in that culture, in that context, everything was in the gut, okay? Everything was in your stomach. And so what this is alluding to is not that, like, just, you know, their, what, their food is their God or anything like that, but it's almost, it's almost a vague intentionality that, like, this is the center point of desire. This is the center point of what they long for, of what they seek. And so what Paul is saying here is that their God is their desires, 
They are ruled, that they are controlled, that they see ultimate authority as whatever they desire. And this encompasses so much. And that's why I think Paul left this intentionally vague, just encompassing all these things because your desires can be that sexual immorality. Your desires can be the addictions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, like anything of this world like that you are pursuing, whether it be greed or wealth or sex or like whatever these things are, like whatever you desire, Whatever your desires may be like, that is what rules the enemies of the cross. That is who their God is. It is not God as they would know it in heaven. It is not Jesus Christ. It is their desires. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Romans 1 does a good job of describing what this means. Their glory is their shame things that they should find shame and they seek in glory. Let me just, just read uh, ten, 10 verses to you real quick that helps describe this. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 on. Let me read this for you. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Let me make this very clear that this is probably the most applicable verse that we can hold today to the situation of what is going on in America. And so let us read it through that lens. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So we see God throughout all of creation. And as a result, people are without excuse but so much more so that we have God's word, that we have his son, that we have the gospel, that we have the presence of Christ's bride, the church, all throughout our country. For though they knew God, verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They found glory in their shame. And they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men did the same. Men committed shameless acts and the, uh, in their own persons the appropriate, the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. 
They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil and greed and wickedness. They are full of envy and murder and quarrels and deceit and malice. They are gossips and slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know God's just sentence, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Something I want you to see right after. Now remember, even though we have laid all that out, even though I've spoken it with a tone of anger in my voice, even though I've pointed out like all the failures, all the flaws, like these are the people whom God died for, whom he sent his son to shed his blood for, to overcome death, to take on all the sins of the world. And so even though maybe before you were in this evil and greed and wickedness, maybe you were full of envy and murder and quarrels and a gossip and a slander and a God-hater, like that does not mean that there is not enough grace and blood and mercy for if you would just turn to Jesus Christ and accept him, then your end would no longer be destruction. Your God would no longer be your stomach and your glory would not be in your shame anymore because you now know God's just sentence that those who do these things deserve to die but Christ came to die for the sinners this is how we know God's love for us that while we were still yet sinners while we were still enemies of God Christ came and died for us So in opposition to this, in opposition to being enemies of the cross, where our end is destruction, where our God is our stomach, where we glory in our shame, and where we are, they are focused on earthly things. Right after that, we see the flip side of the coin, the, the reverse, the other part. Paul says, our citizenship, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those saints there at Philippi, like those who have chosen to follow God in obedience, though you are not perfect, though you are striving, our citizenship, our end, it is not in destruction, but it is in heaven. Our citizenship, where we belong, where we can lay claim to, where we are from and where we will return to, it is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Gotta get back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 says this, verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, because Paul has already brought this up in this letter, look at it all together in the package of this book, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've already gone through that, that it's not a living up to, but a living out of, like that we have taken this in and now like, let's just enjoy it and live it and be a part of it. Like we have not earned our citizenship, but it has been granted and gifted to us. But what that means, what does it 
mean to be a citizen. Like if you are a citizen of one place, one nation, that means you are not a citizen of any other. You do not find a home if you are an American in Brazil or Peru or Spain or England. Like we, there's a thing as dual citizenship. Ignore that for my analogy. But like if you have chosen to become a member of this nation or another, then you have rebuked membership and a home in any other. And our citizenship here, it gives us privileges. Just as like, as a, as a Roman citizen, Paul was in prison and not immediately put to death because he had the privileges anointed to one who is from Rome. And he embraced that, and he used that. And so our citizenship is not something to be just tossed away or uh, taken for granted. Like, it is great and well that we are here and now Americans. We enjoy the privileges of this country, the freedom that it brings, but it does not mean that our faith is dependent or based upon the fact that we are Americans. But the privileges that God gives us as citizens of heaven are this. God extends this to all who would follow him. He says it is a forgiveness of sins. It's one of the benefits. Adoption as sons and daughters. That we are promised answered prayer, promised access to him through prayer. That we are promised eternal life. And that we are promised that like God will be there and he will provide for us and he will care for us here on this earth. But yes, in eternity as well. And so even though it's 4th of July, even though like we honor and we celebrate our country, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's wrong to see yourself as a citizen of anywhere but heaven first. That is our ultimate home. And though we are here now and it is right for us to do whatever it is, I'll say whatever it is, it's right for us here and now to be the ambassadors that God has called for us to be. To share the gospel of Christ. Like, if you want to, I promise you that if I thought legislation or the the way that the government moves and shakes was how that you could change this country into a country that was following Christ, I would not be in the pulpit. I would be running for office somewhere. It is through our faith. It is through the saving knowledge and grace of the gospel that you can truly change people around you. And so if you want to see our nation look differently, then we must be more obedient to Christ and what he has called for us to do, which is go therefore and make disciples of the nations, starting with our own first. We eagerly wait for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope. I hope it's an eagerness in your heart. And this last part as we begin to close today. Paul says, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Christ returned to this earth. Uh, He died, was buried, rose again. He returned to this earth, but he returned not in his 
normal body. His body came out of the tomb, but it was different. Now some things he kept the same. He kept the holes in his hands, these trophies of the work that he had done. He kept the hole in his side. He asked Thomas, if you doubt, just stick your hand here in my side. Like God, Christ intentionally kept those things. And I believe that when we see him in heaven, we'll see him with those same trophies still on him today. But like when we die, you ever considered the fact like yes we talk about going to heaven but like we will eventually be on a new earth we've discussed this already revelations 21 and like he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body so not only is he going to restore us to the father not only are we going to be in his presence but like our bodies our whole selves purified, no more sin in our heart, like fully transformed in our minds, fully transformed in our hearts. And now even our bodies will reflect his glory, the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So the same, if you want a glimpse, if you want an idea of what your body is going to be like in its glorious state, just think about this, better. That's the best way you can think. It's going to be better. Whatever, your, your cancer, your aches, your arthritis, your pains, the concussions I sustained as youth, like these things are not going to limit me in his presence, in his kingdom. Like if you are mute, if you are deaf, like you're going to be able to hear what God is saying to you. You're going to be able to sing praises like you never got to here on this earth. Like it is such a state that we can just have so much hope for and so much uh, just eagerly wait for the Savior. He can do this. Like, if you know, heaven is such a debated thing, such an argued over topic, but like, we're all going to get there one day if we're citizens. And it's so funny that like all of us should be eagerly striving and waiting and, and just, just, just desiring to see something when we have limited knowledge of what it's going to be like. So if you want an idea of what heaven will be like, consider this. When Christ came back to this earth, he was himself. He was fully himself, still fully God, fully man, kept his trophies, like we said. But like, Jesus was hungry. He wanted to eat. So like, there's a glimpse into heaven. Like, we will get to be a part of a feast as it's promised over and over again. Like, we will get to dine with our, our loved ones. Like, it's going to be so cool. Also, like, Jesus looked like himself, but it was so different. Like God transformed him through his power and authority the same way that like maybe today in your own life, like you are transformed, not physically, but like when, uh, when, they, when he came out of the tomb, like they didn't really recognize him. And he was like, woman, and she finally did. Like maybe people today, if you just truly pursued Christ, if you started modeling and imitating Paul and following the, the examples that Christ has said in Timothy and Epaphroditus, like maybe you would be unrecognizable to those around you. I know many of you are. As we finish up three, I just don't want us to take for granted all that God has here for us. Like we are the true circumcision we are the ones who worship by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. Anything that you can do in the flesh, it is dung, it is a waste, it is garbage. Our only true treasure is that which was brought us life. And that is Christ Jesus.
from our text today. Seek those and pay careful attention to them who live according to the example that we see. But not just that, like pray to God that he would transform you. Earnestly ask and just see what he'll do. And see what, like, how you can become a model worth imitating as you follow Christ. That's what Paul says in another text. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Remember that we do not have enemies. Christ has enemies. Enemies of the cross. But like we do not have enemies. We have brothers and sisters in need of pursuing, in need of telling the truth, in need of the forgiveness and the love and the mercy that God first gave us for us to then give them. Because they are in desperate need because they, they are living in a lie where their end is going to be destruction. Hell is real. And their God is their stomach. They're just living out their desires like an animal does in the wild. And their glory is in their shame. All the things that they think are worth boasting in, they are what is killing them. And they are focused only on earthly things. Then as citizens of heaven, let that not be us. Let us eagerly wait for a Savior to come from where we belong, which is heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us just look forward to the promise that he has made that we will be turned from our humble condition into the likeliness of his glorious body by the power, and this is what I want to finish on right now, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Remember when we read at the end of uh, 2 through 11. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is that same power that if you would pray for it, it can change you and your heart right now. James, if you'll come up. It's that same power if you just ask him, can bring you from death to life. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are living right now as an enemy of the cross, just know that there is no condemnation when you put your faith in Jesus. When you choose to follow him, like there is no more death, there is no more shame. You come into the right authority, you understand who God is. And though you have all this knowledge, maybe, maybe you've pushed it off for years and you've chosen to follow your stomach, your desires, like here and now you can make a choice because now is now. You have power in the present. There is no promise of tomorrow. You cannot change the past. And so you have to make a decision. Will you follow God? This is from 52 as we stand. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice and it told